Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. I love uh, Paul's prayers. There's a, there's a gospel thickness to them. Scotty Smith, who pastored Christ Community Church uh, for so long in, up in Franklin, uh, including the years that I served in Franklin, just south of Nashville, uh, would probably call this prayer gospelicious. Uh, he had some great phrases like that. I'm calling it generous praying, that what we have here is generous praying. Uh, all prayers that proceed from the gospel are generous. And um, there's really two praying passages in Ephesians. We're in Ephesians for the first half of the year here. And so we've got this one in chapter 1. And then we'll come to Paul's praying again, chapter 3, which is a passage I like to pray for my children. If you feel like chapter 1 has gone too quickly, like suddenly we started Ephesians and now we're almost to chapter 2 next week, well, we're going to come back to this passage the first Sunday in April, which happens to be Easter, because of the emphasis in this passage on the power of God that Easter celebrates. So Easter, we don't have to get out of Ephesians. In fact, we'll just come back to this passage and we'll focus more on the latter half of it on Easter Sunday. Speaking of the power of God, you know, for a God who is powerful, all-powerful, omnipotent is the fancy word, there are no degrees of difficulty. It's not like creation for God was uh, more challenging than resurrection or vice versa. But the resurrection of Jesus is the power of God at its most glorious and its most generous. And so this is part of, of the thickness of this particular prayer. I love thick prayers. This prayer is about God's power, his power toward us, which I'll emphasize uh, later on in the message it's also about his glory, the glory of God in the risen person of Jesus, who is everything to the church. You just cannot overemphasize the person of Jesus, who he is to us. We could spend six Sundays in this passage and not exhaust it, but what we're going to do is today we're just going to focus on the content of Paul's prayer, which will really put us in verses 17 to 19. We'll kind of key in on that, a couple angles that we'll have on that. And then on Easter, we'll come back and focus uh, on the anchor that is Paul's praying, Jesus being raised. 
You know, that's what makes your prayers effective. I don't know if if we give a, a whole lot of thought to this, but at the foundational level, the reason our praying is effective is not because of the words we string together. The reason our praying is effective is because of what God has done for us in Jesus. Even if you go to the end of James, there's a famous verse in James that says uh, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If you go further over in the New Testament, you find the, the letter of James, if you're not familiar with the Bible, and that's, a, that's a, a verse that a lot of people love to quote out of James. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But think about even the way that's phrased. A righteous person is made so by God. And so our prayers are effective first and foremost because God has done for us in Jesus. And that's what took Paul to prayer, what God had done for these Ephesian Christians in Christ. That's what takes you and me to prayer for each other because the prayer that we've got here is a prayer for fellow Christians, a prayer for brothers and sisters in Christ. What God did for us in bringing us to himself according to the counsel of his will, which his will is his want to. We talked about that the last couple of Sundays. To the praise of his glory. We've talked about that, again, verses 3 to 14, the last couple of Sundays. So when you come to the prayer now, verse 15, it looks like, as you're looking at verse 15, it looks like Paul sets himself to praying for them because he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus, as verse 15 reads, and your love toward all the saints. However, The verse starts with, for this reason. See that, verse 15? And for this reason, that begins verse 15, is actually looking back up into verses 3 through 14, to what God did. So Paul isn't praying because the Ephesians impressed him with their faith in the Lord and their love for all the saints, impressive though that is. He's praying because God impressed him with his bringing these people to faith and adopting them in love. Why, why do I make much of that distinction? Why is that distinction important? Would you ever thank someone for becoming a Christian? Will you ever do that? It sounds a little odd to think of going up to somebody and go, I just, I just want to thank you for becoming a Christian. Irv, Myrna, I just want to thank you all for becoming Christians back when you did. You know? Isn't that a little strange? No, I thank God that Irv and Myrna became Christians. That's how the, the gratitude flows in, in that situation. We thank God for intervening in their lives and our life to bring us to himself and to cultivate ongoing faith and faithfulness to him. And so Paul, having heard about their faith and their love, verse 15, what he sees in that is the fruit of God's prior working in and for them, in and for us. All faithfulness to God, all faithfulness to God is built on God first being faithful to us. So for this reason, verse 15, because God has worked in you as detailed in verses 3 to 14, I pray with unceasing thanks to God for what he is working through you. And it's a rich, thick, gospelicious <laughs> prayer. So today, from this prayer in this passage, let's focus on just that. What he prayed for them. We'll look at it from two angles, as we usually do. He prayed for them to know God better. That's angle number one. And he prayed for them to live as God's people. That's angle number two. He prayed for them to know God better. And he prayed for them 
to live as God's people. This is primarily verses 17 through 19. Look at it again, verse 17. I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That means praying for them to know God better. Verse 18, having the eyes of our hearts, your hearts, enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. And then the rest of it that we'll come back to on Easter punctuates Jesus' right to rule Not just his church, but his right to rule everything in existence, things seen and unseen. Again, we'll come back to this on Easter Sunday, but today, let's key more so on what he prayed for them, which we can pray for one another. First, he prayed for them to know God better. Now, I'm putting that very simply. I realize that we're into some high prayerology here in this particular passage. But, you know, like a, a kind of a football analogy comes to mind, you, you learn how to run your 10-yard pass patterns before you go long. And I think uh, what we've got here is uh, instructive to us on a very foundational level. So let's think about it as simply as we can first. If you ever think, and I'm sure more than one person in the room sometimes thinks this, you know, I just don't know what to pray for people. I go to praying for somebody and I, I don't know, a lot of things just don't come to mind. I want to pray for people, but I'm not really sure what to pray for people. You can go to Paul's prayers. They're usually in the beginning of his letters and you can learn them and you can repeat them back to God. Pray for people what Paul prayed for people. Just because Paul prayed it first doesn't mean you can. It's not like dibs, you know, he did it first and Jesus is tired of hearing this prayer. He wants something new and different. And then like that at all. We can pray for one another what we have in Ephesians 1 here. And at the most foundational understanding of what we have here in Ephesians 1, you're praying, Lord, make them know you better. Again, this prayer is for Christians. And if you just pray that, if you just said that, Lord, make them to know you better, God knows how to fill that in with everything in this passage. Just speaking to you as your pastor, so let's be pastoral here, shall we? You know, I don't want you to not pray. I know Christians, okay? I know Christians pretty well. And I know how it gets with prayer. I know prayer is the thing we all assume we're doing, but it's one of those things that a lot of us just feel awkward at it. And I don't want you to not pray because you get tripped up on not feeling articulate, Oratory is not your thing. That's fine. Or, uh, you know, like I said earlier, you you start to pray and you think, well, I I wish these kind of phrases like Paul uses comes to mind, but man, it just doesn't come to mind for me. And and I just feel real general and and I kind of feel dumb. People are feel the freedom to, to confess how they really feel sometimes. I've I've heard that from, from Christians through the years. And that's okay. Okay. Just start at, Lord, make them know you better. And when you say that, 
The Holy Spirit actually takes the content of this prayer and begins to weave it and work it into what you're saying. Just by simply saying, Lord, make them know you better. God goes before us in everything, including our praying. And so the simplest way to put the what for that we've got here in verses 17 to 19 is is Paul prayed for them to know God better. And the Spirit of God generously fills that in, if we pray that, with everything that's here. It's generous praying, by the way. That's the heart of it. To pray for someone to know God better, you cannot ask much better of God for anyone than that. Because here's what, here's what comes if you, if you know God better. If you know God better, you're finding more of Him to love. If you know God better, you're finding yourself more grateful for Him, His work in you. Even if things in your life aren't as you want them to be, even if things are falling apart. You feel secure in Him. Knowing Him better, it doesn't mean the ability to score high on some Bible ACT. Though there is certainly knowledge about God we need. But knowledge of God, knowing God better, is never presented to us or prayed for us in Scripture for its own sake. Knowledge for its own sake. I mean, take the Pharisees as the most obvious example. The Pharisees knew the Bible cold. And yet look how badly they missed on Jesus. Knowing God better means I get my loves rightly ordered. It means my hopes never get misplaced. Or if they do, I, I come back quickly to, this, to the, the foundation of my hope. Knowing God better means my faith turns into ready faithfulness. Lord, make us to know you better. That's really at the heart of what he's saying in verse 17. But then you look on in verse 18 and he gets more specific Verse 18, you see that phrase in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened? Paul prayed not just that they and we, all readers of Ephesians throughout the ages, get included on this prayer. God's not limited to time. He continually hears this prayer and he likes it. (laughs) Paul prayed not just that we know God better, verse 17, but when you get verse 18's more specificity starting to come into it. He's praying, verse 18, that we know God better by way of insight into certain gospel truths. That's what having the eyes of our hearts enlightened means. I want you to know God better by way of insight into certain gospel truths. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, it's kind of a funny phrase when you look at it there in verse 18 because it's a mixed metaphor. Hearts don't have eyes. Eyes are eyes. Hearts are hearts. But the reason you mix metaphors is uh, you're trying to show something from every possible angle that someone can look at it. That's the reason why you mix a metaphor. You're just trying to show it from another angle. It's not just that we need to know God better. It's that we need insight into certain gospel truths like how everything we believe about God hinges on the resurrection of Jesus, which this passage puts into full view. 
Or like how true enlightenment, just to use this word, verse 18, enlightenment, it doesn't result in supreme self-confidence being enlightened, as we think of it in an American context. Being enlightened in a biblical context means supreme confidence in Jesus being everything Scripture says he is. Let me just uh, tease this out a little bit because when we hear enlightened or enlightenment in our particular context as Americans, we realize that our country was born in the period known as the Enlightenment. The 1700s was the age of of the Enlightenment. You learn this in civics class. One of the things that marked the Enlightenment was um, antagonism between belief and knowledge. And and so uh, faith and reason were thought to be opposites. And that's still around, this old Enlightenment idea that faith and reason are two separate things. Faith is this leap into the dark. It's the great hope so. It's the emergency flare, you know, shot. If anybody's up there, help, you know. That's faith. And reason is what I learn, what I was taught in school, what my senses can gather. The Enlightenment gave us that breakage between faith and reason. It's still around. The Enlightenment era uh, era, uh, enshrined reason that all you ever need to know you know by way of what you can sense, what you can think about, what you can learn. What was that about? It was about supreme self-confidence. Uh, this is why Thomas Jefferson uh, cut Jesus' miracles out of his Bible. You can literally go see in the Library of Congress, the Jefferson Bible. All of the miraculous doings of Jesus, all of the self-referential deity statements of Jesus, Jefferson cut out because as a true son of the Enlightenment, In the enlightened view of things, you don't need to believe in Jesus as divine. You just need to learn from him as an ultimate philosopher. Having the eyes of our heart enlightened, the point of praying that is that we give more and more of ourselves to Jesus as God. We come to understand that's the center of all gospel truth. That's why verses 20 and 21 say... That when Christ was raised from the dead, verse 20, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. Jesus, exclamation point, Jesus is the center of all gospel truth. And so we pray for one another that we know God better by way of insight into certain gospel truths, knowing what's in the center and then moving out on the periphery from there. And this takes us now to the second point, how Paul prayed for them to live as God's people. We've got that Paul prayed for them to know God better. And now how Paul prayed for them to live as God's people. This is the rest of verse 18 into verse 19. Verse 18, that you may know what the hope to which he has called you is. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance of saints? And verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? We don't just take hope first there in verse 18. See it again? You got the phrase, the hope that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? We don't just know hope as an abstract concept, as a a faith statement. We live into the hope 
into which he has called you and me. Which means we don't set our hope on anything or anyone in any ultimate way, short of anyone or anything short of, of everything God's promised to be for us in Jesus and his rulership and our citizenship with, with him. Likewise, uh, notice as verse 18 goes on, the riches that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's not something, when he talks about inheritance, that's, it's not like something that's sitting in a gift bag, you know, that the welcome committee in heaven gives to you when you arrive. Oh, we have these nice, this is your inheritance. Here it is in the back, you know, keys to your mansion, whatever else. Endless country music, whatever heaven is to you, you know, there it is in the gift bag. Remember, we saw the word inheritance Last Sunday in verses 13 and 14. Here it is in verse 18, but it's a repeated word. So let me just go back for a moment to verses 13 and 14 from last Sunday. Remember it? Verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. There's the word, verse 14. Saw it last week. Now we see it again this week. Verse 18 factors into the praying praying us into living as God's people, inheritance. He is the guarantee. The promised Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, verse 14, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is given to us for what reason? To begin the work of making God's future for us, real to us in the present. You and I don't live as God's people in the present unless God's future is real to us. By the way, that word guarantee, I didn't say this last week when we were in it in verse 14, uh, but it's picturing something along the order of an engagement ring. That's how we would think about it. So guarantee in verse 14, it's like an engagement ring. When you see an engagement ring on a young lady's finger, uh, you're seeing a sign in the present of what's to come in the future, a wedding. When verse 18 says, back to verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, both hope and inheritance work together to make God's future for us real in the present. So this is not about just going to heaven when we die. It includes that. But uh, if you want what this is, kind of getting more at, think back to the Exodus in the Old Testament. Remember the Exodus? Got that in mind? The people, uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob followed Moses out of slavery in Egypt. That's what we mean when we say the Exodus. Big part of your Old Testament. What was their inheritance? The promised land. In fact, in the book of Joshua, the word inheritance is used for promised land uh, a, a number of times. But we know... We've read the story. It was a long time before they got into there, at least 40 years. Moses didn't even get to enter. And yet God never left the people that he brought out of Egypt. He provided for them. He guided them. He endured their rebellions over four decades. Why? He had pledged himself to them. These are my people. I am their God, and I will see them through. So when Paul speaks of inheritance, Paul having all this Old Testament knowledge that he readily draws upon, 
He talks about verse 14, taking possession of it. And in verse 18 here, praying inheritance, that we would know the riches of our inheritance in the saints. When he prays that we would live with a knowledge of our inheritance, according to the riches of God's grace to us, that we would live as inheritors in a world in which, verses 22 and 23, all things have been put under Jesus' feet, yet we don't see everything put under his feet. The book of Hebrews chimes in later. What's the point? The point is it is to bust our anxieties. If we live into our inheritance, it busts our anxieties. It kills our fears. You know, living shackled to anxieties and fears for Christians is supposed to be be the, the Egyptian rear view. We have something better now and it will be fully known to us later but it's good now if you're a follower of Christ and maybe you have a lot of anxiety over current events you know it could be if you have a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear it could be that God's future really isn't that real to you I'm not scolding you when I say that in fact I'm I'm trying to invite you when I say that don't you want Don't we want, I want this with you, to find out what it means to have your present day so surrounded by God's future of a world reconciled to himself, a world over which he's in total control both now as well as then, that it, don't you want that to so surround your present that it frees you and me to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, to follow Jesus courageously in the world just as it is? Let's look at verse 19 in this vein of living as God's people. Paul prayed for us to live as God's people, that we would know, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The incomparable power of God on our behalf is resurrection power, as the passage goes on, which we'll come back to on Easter. But notice how it's phrased in verse 19, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. It's one thing to say God's more powerful than death. That's a fact statement. God is more powerful than death. He is. It's one thing to say God will rule a renewed creation and he will reign in a rebellious world and hold it all accountable. Another statement of fact. It's one thing to say those things, but this says more than just that. This says, verse 19... That his power, when you take verse 19 with the rest of the passage, it says, he is powerful over it all on our behalf (laughs) toward us who believe. Verse 19. And if you and I begin to live into this as God's people who know the power of God is toward us, not to destroy us, but to welcome us into the, the glory that eventually will cover the whole earth. The glory of God as the waters cover the sea as the prophets anticipated. If this gospel truth gets into us, we live into it, what it does is it ends up breaking the control and the appeal of all lesser powers on us. Lesser powers being things like status, being things like money, being a seat uh, at, at uh, the table of political power. N- Needing power is no longer our reason. It's no longer our motivation. When we really 
when we really live into the fact that his power is toward us who believe. Let me put it in some, these ways. If, if you and I will live into the truth that God's power is incomparable and for us, not to destroy us, but to, but, but to exalt us, to, to bring us into everything he, he is, is promised to, to Jesus of his people. If you and I live into the truth that God's power is incomparable, we find the power of fear is broken and we can put courage into practice. Courage isn't the absence of fear, it's resisting its mastery. Likewise, if you and I live as God's people who know the power of God is toward us, the power of vengeance, something like vengeance, is broken. Vengeance is a grasp for power. You wronged me, I'll show you. It's the power of God over everything that opposes and wronged him. It's the power of God over everything that wronged him that shows us we can entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly when we're wronged. We can. If you and I live as God's people who know the power of God toward us, then the power of resentment is broken. Resentment is a powerful thing. But if we know God's power is toward us, we can build on-ramps to forgiveness. It may be a lifetime project, but you, you can work on that. You can build on that. If you and I live into the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, verse 19, then gospel truths break the control of all lesser powers over us, even down to the level of social media manners. You know, the people who call out and shout people down, you know that's about power. People who do that are grasping for power. You don't need that. You don't need power like that when you've got power like this. It's for you and loves you. I don't need to feel powerful when I am known by and loved by the only one in the universe who has immeasurable greatness. I'll say this and we're done. I like those car shows where they take a powerful engine and add more horses to it. And then they go out. I love the rumble. I love the sound of exhaust. You know, I love the squealing of the tires. And they go down the road. And there's that big monster engine powering that thing. If I can parallel that to how the power of God actually works toward us. I'm going to mix two biblical streams here. The teaching of Jesus and this prayer of Paul. When Jesus said uh, he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. You know that verse, John 10, 10. As I understand it, that word translated abundant is a word that means more horses than you need. How fitting. Jesus was saying in his teaching, you get me, you get all my power working on your behalf. And what more do we need? I mean, nobody has it better in the church when you think about it. Despite our weaknesses and sins and so much is to our shame, despite our living in a flat, fallen world, the present in which we don't see everything subject to him, but it is, we take heart. There are more horses under the hood of his immeasurable greatness than we know. And you know what? You don't pray generous prayers like this one. And generous prayers like this aren't prayed for us unless we all already know 
that Jesus can and does back what he says about himself and what he says about himself being for us and toward us. Let's pray. We'll sing and we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for your good graces to us, for loving us, giving us hope, giving us inheritance. Lord, that these things would be real to us, not in some kind of way of just a knowledge that we admire, that this would steal us, this would free us, that we would uh, display while we yet live a growing love for you and a growing trust in you and obedience to you and responsibility for you. Lord, thank you for this prayer prayed for us too centuries ago, prayed by saints down through history, prayed by us still today. Lord, draw us to yourself because of your good kindness toward us, your love for us, and your desire to have relationship with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.